0: Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. We have a lot to get through this morning. It feels like, well it is for my kids the first day of school. It feels like the first day of school here as we return for Grand Rounds for the academic year 2015-2016, so welcome. Thanks for coming. I'm sure there will be stragglers uh, coming in through the back. And um, a couple of reminders as we, we begin, reinitiate our Grand Round series. Out of respect for the speakers, we ask that you leave your laptops uh, in your offices or closed. Uh, these, broad, these, these, web, uh, these are on the web. These grand rounds uh, uh, are on the web. So if you need to multitask, uh, you can certainly watch from your desk and and do your work. But otherwise, if you're here, we hope you're here and present. There is an exception now in that our our CME credit, as you may have read out on the tables, or you may see um, going forward, is going to be collected via your smartphones. So I cannot prevent smartphones from being in the room any longer because that's how you will claim your CME credit. And various speakers may utilize the the interactive technology of smartphones to do do surveys and questionnaires as we started last year. So um, as we are rolling into the fall, I want to put a few dates on your calendars. We have on September 16th here Wednesday in two weeks, actually in the new auditorium in the Williamson building, which I think is Auditorium H now the Raising of America we will be screening prior to PBS screening that in November the documentary on the importance of 0 to 3 or 0 to 5 and and healthy communities for our children and our society generally, with a panel uh, hosted by the Boyle Community Pediatrics Program. That's six to eight p.m. We have a couple of other important Chad events coming up. October third is our Storybook Ball, our second or third Storybook Ball, which will be in Manchester Community College the evening of the third, and of course the Chad Hero, the tenth annual Chad heroes October eighteenth. Information for all three of those events can be found at chadkids.org. Um, and sign up and tickets and all that good stuff. But I did start by saying welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for the academic year and I have a little note that it's award winning Pediatric Grand Rounds. So our Grand Rounds committee, inclusive of Kathy Shepkin, and showing uh, Nett in the fourth row, as well as George Little, emeritus member, was awarded uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock's, or Dartmouth's, uh, award for the regularly scheduled CME series, the best regularly scheduled CME series across uh, Dartmouth and Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So congratulations. high standards for a rookie team of of members of our committee Kathy and Charlene uh, their sophomore season the schedule already looks strong I don't have previews for the rest of the month but we can do that next week Uh, as I reminded you we will be collecting CME credit as of next week online so you need to go to your account which tracks your CME credit and link your cell phone number with the account. If you don't want to use your smartphone or cell phone, you can continue to claim your credit online at the web page. The Center for Continuing Education and the Health Sciences is what it's been known as. Sometimes it's going to be called the Center for Learning and Professional Development, and so we'll be doing that. Our stellar grand rounds, grand rounds committee heard from me, sort of a, an interesting charge. I, I saw a graph like this at the Society for Adolescent Health meetings and health and medicine meetings last spring, and this is a, this is a, a, a representation of the global burden of disease. There's a tool, actually, you can play with online at uh, healthdata.org from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. And I asked our Grand Rounds Committee to make sure that as we're going through the various interesting and important topics that we touch on in Grand Rounds and our CME, that we try to make sure we incorporate those very most important conditions that contribute to uh, morbidity and mortality across the lifespan. So this is a representation graphically. The, 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 the total screen is basically the total burden of uh, disease. And the metric is disability adjusted life years. This is for under age five. Blue is basically non-communicable conditions, the green are injury, and the red is infectious diseases, but they lump neonates and and reproductive health into that category for the purposes of this screening. So under 5, it's not a surprise that the red box is huge. Once we get over 5, ages 5 to 14, red box is gone. Infectious disease, communicable diseases are basically not a major consideration in terms of uh, the contributions for Disability adjusted life years if you do other criteria, you'll find this looks similarly with um, non communicable diseases the major uh, Major players and a lot there in MDD major depressive disorder and an injury And as we get 15 to 49 years you can't cut it from 21 and under unfortunately But once you cut it up to my age range 15 to 49 my patients and myself Uh, Injury starts to take a heavier toll, and of course the non-communicable diseases change with ischemic heart disease starting to raise its ugly head, stroke, and lung. Overall, if you do all ages, uh, the communicable diseases do raise themselves back up in the United States. Injury is important, ischemic heart disease, stroke, and lung. And then when you look at the risk factors associated with those disease states, injuries and illness, you can see the risk factors that are primarily associated with those are dietary risks, right here smoking, physical activity, alcohol use. And that's sort of the segue for our first grand round speaker of the year, uh, Dr. Sargent, who's gonna talk with us about those uh, non-communicable diseases, what he describes as those diseases of consumption, conspicuous consumption, perhaps. But before I get to that, I have to certainly introduce Jim. Uh, Although he may need no introduction um, to many of you, it's still important that we remind ourselves where he came from. So he came to us in 1989 from Boston City Hospital, where he completed his fellowship in general <laughs> academic pediatrics after his residency at the same institution, a graduate of Tufts University School of Medicine, as well as the University of Oregon. Um, his CV is long and impressive, and all the more impressive because he's charted a career that's brought him national and international recognition and appropriate fame right from here at Dartmouth and Chad. Uh, I will just uh, share one anecdote that Alan Rizicki shared with me just moments ago which was when they wrote for his first award as a Robert Wood Johnson uh, uh, Career Award, Generalist Physician Faculty Scholars Award, Uh, Alan accidentally left in a comment about him needing to find a better haberdasher to advance his career because his his attire wasn't exactly consistent. Um, that didn't derail that award, nor subsequent awards. And uh, Jim today uh, will show off his attire, which has not slowed him down. He is uh, professor of pediatrics, community and family medicine at the Dartmouth Institute. He is the co-director of the cancer prevention and control at the Norris Carton Cancer Center. He is uh, in Dr. Darnell's uh, retirement. He has become our vice chair for Research here in the Department of Pediatrics He um, is the current inaugural holder of the Scott and Lisa Stewart Professorship in Pediatric Oncology Today he will probably speak to us about his role as the director of the C. Everett Koop Center here at Dartmouth But he has won impressive awards including the C. Everett Koop MD Courage Award here at Dartmouth and a very special achievement award from the Academy of Pediatrics already recognizing him for his important contributions, both in terms of lead exposure from earlier in his career and then smoking exposure and other important uh, noncommunicable diseases that are amenable to public policy efforts. So Jim, have I embarrassed you enough? Time to get up here.
1: Can everybody hear me? Yeah. Thank you, Keith. It's, uh, it's really my pleasure to be able to give the first Grand Rounds. The, the typical slot for me is uh, mid-January after a major snowstorm. <laughs> uh, so this is the first time I've really been able to talk to the, almost the entire Department of Pediatrics. Um, thanks, Keith, for that uh, introduction. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been great to have a career here at uh, at Chad and, and I did get that award, <laughs> award despite Alan Ruzicki's best attempt to keep me from getting it. Um, I'm going to talk about. Um, I actually don't have to give the first part of my talk because Keith's already given it. Um, the uh, I'm going to talk about chronic diseases, um, what what uh, the Europeans call non-communicable diseases, um, and then I'm going to talk about. Uh, you know I'm a I'm a full professor now, so I mainly talk about. Um, the work that young people do and, and uh, that are kind of in my sphere, and that's pretty much all I'm going to talk about. We've got some really, really bright, um, young researchers uh, up on the eighth floor that are doing some really amazing work, and um, that's a lot what I'm going to talk about. Um, I have to report a conflict. Um, I'm going to talk about energy drinks. There's one slide on energy drinks. In the past year, I served as a consultant for attorney's Sweet Monster Beverage. and um, I want to be clear about you know, conflict because I think that's something that we all have to face and we all have to be clear about. So I'm going to tell you what I opined about um, for the attorneys, it was whether Monster Marketing campaign influenced teens who used the beverage and subsequently had fatal cardiac arrhythmias. I didn't uh, give an opinion on whether the cardiac arrhythmia was related to the Monster, just whether the Monster Marketing would have likely caused the kids to start drinking the beverage. What I'll mainly talk about today is corporate diseases, uh, chronic diseases and corporate products, and I want to talk about my vision for the C. Everett Koop Institute. Um, I'm really proud to have been uh, nominated as the director of the Koop Institute, um, and we're gonna to try to keep the Institute and the vision of the Koop, of Dr. Koop going. Um, but I'm also gonna talk about this pediatric prevention research that's going on in tobacco, alcohol, energy drinks, and energy-dense food consumption. So um, back to death from chronic disease, I always kind of, when I talk about this, I start with this because it really emphasizes uh, what people in the United States die from. We don't think about this that much in pediatrics because we don't deal with these diseases. But the the two headline diseases are uh, cancers and diseases of the heart, and both kill uh, somewhere around a half a million, a little more than half a million people a year. But if you look at the diseases that mainly kill people in the United States, they're mainly chronic diseases. Heart disease, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, stroke, diabetes, liver disease and cirrhosis, and uh, diseases of hypertension. Um, And so if you look at, if you turn it around and look it another way, what are the corporate products that cause these mortalities? What you have is the leading cause is tobacco, and everybody knows that. Um, It's responsible for about 400, this this slide hasn't been updated, it's about 480,000 preventable deaths a year. And um, about uh, half to a third of those deaths occur to people in middle age. And there's alcohol that kills about 80 to 100,000 a year. Uh, Food and uh, lack of exercise kills anywhere between 100 and 200,000 a year. Toxic exposures like lead, Uh, kill another 60,000 a year. And then there's guns, of course, which uh, are responsible for many of the homicides that occur in the United States. And car accidents. Now, car accidents have just been surpassed uh, by uh, overdose deaths in the United States. as the uh, biggest cause of non-accidental death. And that's a whole other story about how OxyContin led to massive uh, um, addiction and uh, became the modern heroin epidemic. Um, but i 'm not going to talk about that today. Um, Keith talked about uh, accounting for morbidity, and the way you do that is to talk about uh, disability adjusted life years and that 's a combination of years lived with disability and years of life due to uh, loss due to premature mortality. So things that kill people early, like alcohol, um, end up really causing a lot more disability adjusted life years because people die um, early from alcohol due to injuries and suicides and things like that. But uh, this is the, just a blow up of the graph that Keith showed really quickly. If you look what's responsible for disability-adjusted life years, dietary risks are leading. Tobacco smoking, high body mass index, high fasting plasma glucose, all of the alcohol use, all these are a result of the uh, consumption of those products that uh, I mentioned in that previous slide. And uh, everybody's uh, coming to the conclusion um, that uh, this is a Lancet article that transnational corporations that profit from this consumption um, uh, are the are, uh, primary cause of these uh, uh, major drivers, of these non-communicable diseases that we're seeing. And these diseases are not just diseases that we experience in this country. Increasingly, they're diseases that people die from in developing nations and, uh, and middle-income countries as well. So um, with the pediatric audience, why are these problems? Well, Dave Kessler um, was the first person that described tobacco as a pediatric disease. And all of these diseases are really pediatric diseases. If you look at unhealthy eating, um, the consumption of energy-dense foods begins at birth. And we're going to talk about the marketing of energy-dense foods because companies target kids as young as two and three with uh, their... uh, but they're advertising for these foods. Media use is highly uh, associated with inactivity. We've got entertainment entertainment media advertising. That also begins at birth, because kids start watching TVs, as we know, um, in the first year of life. Um, Smoking begins in adolescence. Drinking often begins in adolescence. Uh, Many kids uh, begin uh, their uh, use of handguns and especially in urban areas uh, during adolescence, and this is related to injury, suicide, and homicide, and then driving. It's interesting to me that parents uh, worry so much about immunizations, and then they give their 16-year-old boy a driver's license. It's, 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 uh, you know, it's extraordinary how, how giving a 16-year-old boy a driver's license increases the risk that that kid's going to die much more than any of the things that parents or pediatricians do to those kids. Prior to the age of 16, so if you look at how this works, these transnational corporations that produce these products, and and I think the tobacco companies really um, uh, uh, taught other, the, it was it was the lawyers of the tobacco companies that developed these strategies that now the other companies use to lead to to uh, that results in un, unhealthy consumption of these products. So. They undermine scientific research by paying scientists to, uh, minority scientists to uh, publish articles that uh, try to undermine the major uh, thrust in the scientific research. They engage in unfair marketing practices. We're going to talk in detail about that. They lobby politicians to undermine regulation. And then they encourage voters to oppose regulation. So um, that all leads to unhealthy consumption and chronic disease. So how does that relate to the Coop Institute? Well, let's talk about uh, C. Everett Coop. Raise your hand if you've heard of C. Everett Coop. (laughs) Just about everybody. You know, I talked about, uh, the last uh, Coop lecture was at the Rockefeller Center. There were a lot of undergraduates there. And I said, raise your hand if you've heard of C. Everett Coop, and only about two-thirds of the um, group raised their hands. So there's a whole younger generation that really has no knowledge of what this man um, stood for and what he did. Um, but he was a Dartmouth graduate, as many of you know. Um, he was a surgeon in chief at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia from 46 to 81. He uh, really is the person that invented pediatric surgery. He's the first person to separate Siamese twins. Um, and then he was appointed as the 13th uh, U.S. Surgeon General by Ronald Reagan. Um, and he served from 1982 to 1989. He was an amazing. Amazing person. Um, he was a you know courageous educator. He was an advocate for of um, uh, the population. And really, you know, the only Surgeon General that I know of that became a household name in this country, in large part because of his educational campaigns. Um, he took on the tobacco companies um, at a time when uh, the tobacco companies were aggressively fighting people that took them on. Um, And he was the first public official to talk about the AIDS epidemic um, when the AIDS epidemic was hitting the streets in the United States. Um, And that was a hard thing for public officials to talk about because they had to talk about sex. But uh, he had the courage to stand up and uh, begin educating the public about that epidemic. Uh, 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 A a, a really amazing, amazing man. And it's wonderful that... um, he, uh, that we can call him uh, one of our own at Dharma. So, um, he uh, Chick started an institute here, um, and um, we want to carry on um, the work of the institute. And uh, so the first thing you have to talk about when you talk about carrying on the work of an institute is the vision. And, and vision, I think, has to do with... Uh, with uh, Sievert Koop's legacy as the most effective U.S. surgeon in general. Uh, he was known for his integrity and his courage in addressing difficult health issues, and he relentlessly addressed tobacco use during a time when the industry denied that nicotine was addictive and that smoking caused any disease at all. So, what you know, my vision of the Coop Institute is it's going to sustain his legacy of improving the health of the nation by addressing behaviors that cause chronic disease. And as a pediatrician, the place where uh, we're going to focus the science is on uh, the initiation of these behaviors during childhood. So, um, so uh, I think the, we're going to refocus the institute a little bit. Uh, it was primarily an educational institute, we're going to refocus it on science. Uh, the science at first is going to really focus on adolescent behaviors, focusing on why adolescents uh, adopt the behaviors that set them on the course to chronic disease. Uh, we study individual risk factors, you know, personality, sensation-seeking, what parents do, what peers do, uh, but we primarily study corporate influence and um, that really relates to studying marketing exposure, how kids respond to marketing, and uh, increasingly we're going to work on developing interventions to prevent these unhealthy behaviors. And the corporate products that I'm going to tell you about that are under active investigation are tobacco, alcohol, energy drinks, and energy energy dense foods. So so if we're going to talk about marketing, we have to talk a little bit about how companies regulate their marketing. And, And the mantra of companies these days is corporate social responsibility, that you can trust us to be responsible, to be socially responsible. And the the, the primary reason companies want to do that is to avoid government regulation. They say, we're responsible, we can take care of this, we can self-regulate. And in fact, what they do is they develop weak self-regulatory structures um, to avoid the government controls over their marketing product distribution. It relies on the fact that in the absence of any internal external monitoring No one's watching what they actually do. And I'm going to show you examples of how they um, completely violate their own self-regulatory standards. Tobacco and alcohol claim to avoid children. I'm going to show you how they target children. And then food companies actively market to kids as young as age two. So with respect to tobacco, um, the marketing of tobacco was self-regulated until the 1998 Master Settlement Agreement raise your hand if you know what the master settlement agreement is okay a lot of people don't so the master settlement agreement was um brokered uh after in the mid-1990s first mississippi then other states started suing the tobacco companies for the cost of of taking care of medicaid patients in their states mississippi won florida won minnesota won and then massachusetts was um was next and i was actually um Um, helping the state of Massachusetts. It was Massachusetts versus versus Philip Morris. And I was one of the um, experts that was talking about uh, marketing to kids. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, And uh, the tobacco companies were realizing that the lawyers on the other side were every time new documents came out and the documents were read, they started asking for other documents. So pretty soon, um, the documents were flowing out of the companies, and they'd pretty much lost control over their internal documents, and they wanted to stop that. So they said, let's settle. And they settled with the states um, in the Master Settlement Agreement in 1998, which gave the states money, which states like New Hampshire spent um, plugging potholes and um, and, uh, um they continued to to this day to give the states money, but it's less and less each year because as tobacco consumption drops in the population, the companies have to pay less to the states. Um, but prior to the master settlement agreement, which was um, constricted their marketing uh, to a great extent and was enforced by the state attorneys general, prior to that, they self-regulated Um, And and they maintained that marketing aimed only to prompt brand switching among adults. Um, And so these documents have now been studied in great detail, the documents that were released from the companies, and it's been found um, clearly from the company documents that the cigarette manufacturers monitored smoking by teenagers. They saw youth smoking as fundamental to their survival and that their packaging, product placement, and advertising was designed specifically to appeal to new smokers. Now, they they were appealing also to young adults, right? But uh, the marketing was clearly targeted also to adolescents. And whenever they talked about uh, young adults, uh, they were talking about adolescents as well. Uh, When I started studying um, this issue, tobacco marketing, it was in the the mid-1990s, or kind of the early 1990s. And at that time, the CAMEL campaign was in full swing. So we had the cartoon um, uh, Joe Camel, and these uh, Marlboro gear catalogs were in all of the convenience stores um, between you know across the state. And um, as we went into classrooms uh, studying um, how you know students in, in the classroom situation, we're seeing these these book bags hanging in the backs of the classrooms, it like billboards um, in the school. So we quickly conducted a survey. Um, of five uh, middle schools. And uh, all of you will recognize a lot of these names um, on here. This is one, this is Deb Pullen's first paper, I think. Wasn't it? Was this your first paper, Deb? Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <coughs> and what it documented was that a third of the kids owned one or more of these items. So they were, the, the tobacco companies were putting two to three billion dollars a year into distributing these items. A third of the kids in Vermont uh, owned one of these items, uh, 5% of them had brought one of the items to school the day of the survey, 40% of them had seen an item, and ownership of the items was strongly related to whether or not the kids smoked. Um, that was followed forward by us and other teams with uh, longitudinal studies that showed that never smokers who owned the items were more likely to start smoking. and. Um, uh, a ban on the distribution of these items was incorporated into the Master Settlement Agreement. Um, and then in 2000, and, uh, in the early 2000s, the Justice Department sued the tobacco companies. And they sued the tobacco companies on the, on the, on the same set of uh, laws that they sued the mafia, the racketeering laws. They said that they had collaborated and colluded uh, to continue to market uh, a product that was poisonous to the American population. Um, despite, um, despite full knowledge that that was the case. Um, and uh, her statement, uh, this was a thousand-page do- document, but her statement on, on uh, marketing is from the 1950s to the present, tobacco companies have used different methods of intentionally marketed cigarettes to young people to recruit replacement smokers who would ensure the future economic viability of tobacco industry. So fast forward to 2015, and the big story is FDA and tobacco. Um, as many of you know, in 2009, the FDA assumed regulatory authority over cigarettes, pipes, loose tobacco, and oral tobacco. Not all tobacco products, but those tobacco products. And, but since 2009, tobacco companies have responded by submitting applications for about 4,000 substantially equivalent products. So the market, and those products have come to market. So what we've seen in the tobacco market is, uh, it's like Campbell's soup. The, the, the products have just expanded on the shelf space. Uh, and, uh, and, and now Marlboro, it's not just Marlboro Reds and Marlboro Golds. It's, it's like 10 types of Marlboro cigarette products on the shelves. And that's true for all of the others. Um, so, so this has spawned a, a whole new science. And it's called tobacco regulatory science. Um, and the science is to understand how new products are used and how the FDA can best regulate them. And we're participating in that science. Um, so obviously, all these new products raise the question of multiple tobacco product use among U.S. adolescents. And um, it's, um, it used to be we just ask about cigarettes, right? But now when you survey adolescents about tobacco use, you have to, have to ask about, about nine product categories. And uh, so what we did was uh, we had this... Uh, Uh, Many of the things I'm going to talk about come from this survey. It was a uh, a stimulus uh, survey. We got stimulus money to go into the field and survey um, uh, a national sample of uh, adolescents and young adults age 15 to 23. It was a survey that Suzanne and I and others in the group put together. uh, And then many people are kind of using the data from that survey to study different things now. Um, The adolescents were surveyed with parental consent. The young adults, we just got their consent. It was longitudinal. There were, these are the ends for the, the baseline sample and the follow-up samples. And in this particular study, we asked about these nine categories of tobacco. And the big story was that only about half the kids were single product users. The other half of kids over here were either dual users or multiple product users. If you look at the single product users, about half of them were using cigarettes. So only a quarter of the adolescent sample were using only cigarettes. So think about this when you're asking adolescents about tobacco use. If you just say, you know, you smoke cigarettes. You're missing about uh, <laughs> half the stuff the single users are using. You've got to ask about hookah. You've got to ask about little cigars. And increasingly, you have to ask about e-cigarettes. If you look at the dual users, they're using the most common products, you know? Uh, cigarettes, little cigars, cigarettes, hookah, uh, cigarettes, e-cigarettes, and then multiple product uses, it's just all over the place. Um, so um, this was one of the first studies to come out that showed that uh, adolescents were using uh, multiple products and uh, that you had to ask about uh, lots of other things besides cigarettes if you're really going to capture their uh, tobacco use. Um, e-cigarettes is really a big topic now. Uh, Suzanne's talked to you about um, e-cigarettes, so I think you all know what they are. Um, there are these devices that have a battery and a filament and a mixture of propylene glycol and, and nicotine. And when the filament lights up, when you puff on it, uh, it creates a, a aerosol, a really fine aerosol of nicotine that you're going to inhale into your lungs. Um, Suzanne talks about the promise and perils of e cigarettes. Well, the promise is that it's, it's potentially a lower harm product. That hasn't been proved, but. Um, you're breathing in about four or five products into your lung as opposed to the 4,000 products that you breathe in when you breathe in tobacco smoke. So theoretically, it should be a safer product. Um, the perils with respect to adolescence has to be seen in the context of the fact that adolescent smoking has declined each year for the last two decades. Um, so the question is, could the e-cigarettes become a starter product to get kids back onto nicotine? Um, The uh, two corollary questions are, could e-cigarettes attract adolescents who wouldn't otherwise smoke? They don't want to smoke cigarettes because that's unhealthy. But this is perceived as a more healthy product. Is this something that they would try? Kids who wouldn't otherwise smoke would try. And then for kids who try, the big question is, do they stick with e-cigarettes or do they go on to start smoking combustible products, which is what leads to the chronic diseases, presumably. So, um, um, we've asked, uh, we've, we've, we've partially answered the question about um, whether medium risk adolescents uh, engage in e-cigarette use uh, in partnership with Tom Wills at the University of Hawaii Cancer Center. I've uh, worked with Tom for a number of years now. He's uh, an excellent behavioral scientist at the Cancer Center there, and he uh, has done a multi-ethnic uh, school-based survey uh, that really focused on smoking in movies. But um, he started incorporating e-cigarette questions into the survey so we could actually study e-cigarettes. But he's also he's a behavioral uh, psychologist. So he studies things like expectancies, um, the idea that smoking might make you more self-confident or might make you feel uh, m- more uh, somehow uh, b- more positive, um, friend smoking, sensation seeking, rebelliousness, self-control those kinds of things. And the Hawaii population is really different from the mainland population, at least it was in 2013. Because we had, in Hawaii, 17% of kids who were using e-cigarettes only at the time. You can see only 3% were using cigarettes only. But there were 12% that were dual users. So about 30% of these kids had used e-cigarettes at the time of the survey. And that allowed us to compare means for all these cigarette smoking risk factors across non-smokers, e-cigarette-only users, and then these other two groups. And you see the cigarettes-only and the dual-use groups, if you look at those means, they're very similar. But if you go across down to the non-smokers, you find that the means for the e-cigarette-user-only group are somewhere in between this group and this group. So it raises the question uh, that, that was raised in the previous uh, slide when we were talking about what the perils might be, uh, that teens who used only e-cigarettes were intermediate in, uh, on levels of risk and protective factors, um, raising the question of whether e-cigarettes are recruiting low-risk youth to tobacco product use. Now the second question about whether kids who use e-cigarettes progress to using tobacco has been uh, Answered uh, this month by a JAMA study that looked at a Los Angeles cohort. In order to answer that, you've got to survey kids twice. You've got to survey them at a time when you've got only e-cigarette users and then survey them later to see what those only e-cigarette users do. And we had the capability of doing that in the survey. Um, and uh, there's a couple of people... Uh, I want to introduce you to uh, Samir, who's been uh, working on tobacco with us, who I introduced you to before. Mike Stuhlmiller, who's a a behavioral uh, psychologist that uh, does our statistics for us. He lives in Marquette, Michigan. been working with him along with Tom Wills for a number of years. And Brian Premack at the University of Pittsburgh, who actually wrote the paper. So if you take this, kids in this survey, uh, I think it was in 2011, and you look at the kids that were non-susceptible never smokers. So susceptibility, so for people that are, that are kind of talking to adolescents in a clinic, right? if you're talking to kids and you ask them if they've ever smoked anything or used anything, they say no. You can ask them about their attitudes to get a feel for whether they're likely to smoke in the future. And so if you can, you can ask them things like, do you think you'll smoke in a year? If they, def- they say definitely not, they're, they're unlikely to smoke in a year. But if, they're, if they waffle, they say probably not. You know, even probably not. They're twice as likely as the kids who say definitely not to initiate in the next year. So you take these kids at baseline that are not susceptible. They're definitely not going to smoke in the next year. And they've never, they've never smoked anything, you know, like cigarette. And uh, this was 2011, so there weren't many e-cigarette-only user, users, just 16 of them. The rest of them were, 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 were non-users. And if you compare those 16 with these kids, the only place where they were a little bit uh, more at risk was in sensation seeking. They were a little bit higher in terms of their risk taking mean. But if you looked at subsequently what happened to those kids, um, now the kids who weren't e-cigarette users, only about 9% of them became attitudinally susceptible but didn't smoke, and about 9% of them tried smoking. But if you look at these e-cigarette users, it's about a third of them that became susceptible, and almost 40% of them that progressed to smoking. So if you put that into a multivariate uh, regression, controlling for all these other factors, it's only 16 kids. I was shocked. Okay, This is only based on 16 kids. But you've got high statistically significant odds ratios for progression from non-susceptibility to susceptibility, and high odds ratios on the order of 8 for progression to cigarette smoking. So this is going to come out next week and there'll be a lot of uh, press with it. I'll be in Europe, so Samir's going to be handling all the press. Um, but I, I think that it's starting to help us understand what e- you know, whether e-cigarettes are a threat in the context of, 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 of uh, progressing to combustible use after they try the e-cigarettes. Okay, so we're going to switch from tobacco to alcohol. Um, um, talk about laying to rest the idea that alcohol marketing doesn't affect underage drinking. Alcohol marketing is a little bit like tobacco marketing was in the 1980s. It's the Wild West. They market everywhere. They market on television. They pay for product placement. They're in magazines. They're in the stores. Uh, they're everywhere where they're marketing. It's really hard not to be exposed to alcohol marketing. So um, from this same uh, set of data, uh, this, uh, this is really what the uh, data was primarily um, attempting to answer. Uh, we've got a uh, uh, couple of uh, people on this paper that you'll recognize, a couple of others that are up on the eighth floors. A gang Lee is a uh, statistician, and Zhongzi Lee is uh, our programmer that helps us uh, develop all the exposure measures. Um, and this was published in JAMA Pediatrics in January, Cued Recall of alcohol Advertising on <laughs> television. Uh, and underage drinking behavior. So um, what we did was we captured uh, all the ads from the top 21 beer and distilled spirits brands that aired for the year prior to the survey. And these are all the brands that turned up on the the top list. A lot of you will be familiar with these brands um, and the ads that you see that are affiliated with these brands. So basically what we did was we we found these 351 ads for those alcohol brands. We paired them with ads from top fast food um, brands. And then we took each of these ads and we created a still from it and we blanked out the uh, obvious uh, reference to any uh, any brand. And the kids were randomly shown 20 um, of the alcohol stills and 20 of the fast food stills. And we asked them, have you seen it? Um, um, how much do you like it? And can you name the brand? And based on their answers to those 20 questions, we could create a score for how um, receptive they were to the advertising. And if you look at how that score related to drinking, what you, found, what you see is that there's this dose response. It doesn't matter whether you look cross-sectionally or you take the, you look longitudinally. There's a linear dose response, higher, uh, 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 having seen, having liked, being able to decode the brand um, on the marketing was related to higher rates of uh, hazardous drinking and binge drinking. Um, and uh, there was no relationship with, uh, between uh, higher receptivity to fast foods uh, and drinking. And if you put that into a multivariate model, uh, the kids who uh, had higher receptivity to these TV ads for every two ads they could recognize, like, and uh, name the brand to, they were 60% higher, 69% higher to begin drinking. In the longitudinal study, they were about 40% higher to begin binge drinking, and they were about 50% higher to begin hazardous drinking. Hazardous drinking is just binge drinking plus uh, regretting, doing something you regret when you drink. Yeah. Do
0: you know- direction this is? So if children who are already predisposed to drink are more likely to recognize the brand or more likely to pay attention to those?
1: Well, um, all you can say is that this uh, model is adjusted for age, sex, race, sensation seeking, peer drinking, and parental drinking. So um, to answer that question, what you have to do is come up with the covariate that we didn't control for that would predict um, higher attention to the ads at baseline. You'll have to find a gene or something like that—the alcohol gene or something like that. I'm sure there's something that we might not have measured. Um, you know, you can always criticize this kind of research for not measuring all the potential confounders.
0: I wasn't criticizing the research. I just wondered if there were other aspects of. Um, as you said, parental drinking, things like that, that would make them maybe pay more attention. Not a gene, but something like other societal factors. But it sounds like you did control for some of those. That was my question.
1: Yeah, we tried to control for as many things as we could think of. But, you know, obviously can't control for everything, right? <coughs> so let's talk a little bit about alcohol marketing self-regulating, uh, self-regulation. regulating self The, the um, the beverage councils for the distilled spirits and and, and the beer has, has a code of responsible practices. In that code of responsible practices, they address responsible content. And they say the content of beverage, alcohol, advertising, and marketing materials should not primarily appeal to in, individual, individuals below legal purchase age. Um, so that leads them to leave out things like Santa Claus, right? <laughs> it's really helpful. Um, but they also say that uh, alcohol advertising and marketing materials shouldn't portray alcohol products and, 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 and should, they should portray drinking in a responsible manner. So you can tell me if you think this is a portrayal of responsible drinking. I forgot to plug in the sound. See if I can get it going. <laughs> So we're seeing more and more of these kinds of ads, we call them party ads. And um, what we did was, uh, this was done in conjunction with uh, a friend, uh, Matisse Morgenstern from uh, Germany who were missing terribly, he was here on sabbatical last year, and again Mike Stuhlmiller. What he did was, we had a couple of Dartmouth students or a couple of students content code all these ads, we had about 600 drinking ads. And they content-coded them for humor, with friendship, partying, love, sex. And we did a latent class analysis and found there were five classes of ads. Partying, <laughs> quality ads that are uh, uh, emphasizing the quality of the product, um, sports ads, manly ads, and uh, artsy, kind of relax, relaxing ads. The partying ads comprised 41% of the s- sample. Um, you can see the brands that uh, emphasize the partying Theme and other brands that emphasize the, you know, like Sam Adams emphasizes the quality of the product theme. So the next step in the research is to see if the party themed exposure to party themed ads is the main thing that's prompting kids to uh, do these tra- drinking transitions. Um, and uh, Montes is working on that paper as we speak. Finally, um, uh, just uh, something about energy drink consumption. So my interest in energy drink consumption is not fatal cardiac arrhythmias. I think a bigger problem with energy drink consumption is when kids drink energy drinks with alcohol. Um, alcohol is a stimulant, and then it's a depressant. And the thing that saves most kids when they drink is they get sleepy and they fall asleep. They fall into a deep sleep, but they don't drink anymore. But when they drink Red Bull or they drink Monster with uh, alcohol, that enhances the stimulant effect, makes them drink longer, and could theoretically make them more likely to binge drink. So um, we took this same data set, and we asked them about uh, past seven-day energy drink prevalence. Um, this is a study that was analyzed and written up by Jen Emon, who's a um, really bright young scientist in our, in our, uh, in our group, and also with uh, Diane Gilbert-Diamond. Uh, who's, uh, their focus is mainly eating. But uh, energy drinks was uh, close enough to their interest that they became interested in it. Found that uh, 13% of 15 to 17-year-olds had had energy drinks in the past seven days. And if you looked at the likelihood uh, of binge drinking or problem drinking, this is uh, eight-plus audit is big problem drinking, four-plus audit is minor problem drinking, that uh, kids who used energy drinks in the past seven days had increased risk. Um, in these two categories, but the real big, uh, interesting finding for me was we asked them if they ever mixed energy drinks with alcohol, and if they said they'd ever mixed energy drinks with alcohol, they were four to five, they were three to five times more likely to have engaged in these outcomes. So it was, it's the first uh, evidence uh, among adolescents that energy drink consumption is related to um, these uh, kind of bad drinking outcomes that we want kids to engage in. So energy drinks is really something that's worth asking about, I think, particularly energy drink use um, in conjunction with alcohol use. So finally, I'm to the point where I get to uh, write, uh, um, I'm asked sometimes to write uh, um, commentaries on on research. And this was my um, opportunity to talk about underage drinking and alcohol. I think the scientists have been dancing around this for too long. Uh, pretending like uh, there's not enough evidence to suggest that alcohol advertising is related to teen drinking. And um, I basically said it's time to move beyond questioning whether marketing influences use and get serious about rolling back alcohol advertising worldwide. I suggested a framework for uh, rolling back the advertising. And finally, and I think most importantly, I said, we have to realize that when it comes to corporations, self-regulation is a little better than no regulation at all. And um, I took the words from uh, a Dutch economist who was comment- commenting on the response to the financial crisis of 2008. Self-regulation stands in relation to regulation the way self-importance stands in relation to importance and self-righteousness to righteousness. <laughs> so I get to get up in my soapbox. Now that I a full professor. So let's talk about food for a little bit. Um, so food companies, I think they're the most egregious in terms of their advertising to children because they advertise directly to kids that are 7 to 12. Uh, they spend $150 million a year on television advertising and um, $3 million on premiums that they give away in their, in their, uh, you know, in their stores and uh, movie tie-ins. The premiums are, premiums are usually related to a movie. Um, And the self-regulation for that business is is conducted through the Better Business Bureau. And if that's not the fox watching the hen house, I don't know what is. But they have some reasonable guidelines. I'm here to tell you, if they adhered to their guidelines, I'd be okay with it, right? Because they say, when it comes to advertising to children, you shouldn't emphasize the premium, because kids get confused. They don't know what the product is, right? And that you should emphasize food choices that are healthy, like apples and you know, milk, and stuff like that. So here's a McDonald's ad from last year. You can tell me if they're adhering to their self-regulation guidelines. something because in because you want to the power of the red box. Sir, I
0: must have it. I can't just have a generator. Oh, for a sir. <laughs> Whether you're a hero or not.
1: Did you see the milk? <laughs> That's
0: super toy.
1: So we um, pulled down a bunch of these ads, um, and uh, I did this in conjunction with Amy, who, uh, in full self, it's full disclosure, is my wife, and um, Diane and uh, Diane Gilbert Diamond and uh, and uh, Jen Eamon. So we showed kids these ads, and we said, you know, these are uh, three to five-year-olds. And we said after the ad, we said, well, what did you see? And they said, well, I saw this, and I saw that, and I saw this. And uh, so bottom line is, when we showed them an adult ad, they almost always knew it was about the food. 70% of the time, they mentioned food. But when we showed them a kid's ad, it was only about 30 to 40% of the time. It didn't matter whether it was a McDonald's or a Burger King ad. The same ad companies are making the ads. Subsequently, Burger King has gotten out of the business. They're not advertising to children anymore. It's only McDonald's. That's the only fast food company that advertises on Nickelodeon and Nicktoons and all those other. So, so McDonald's really is a, a naughty company. It's really. Um, you no,
0: know, I know they make. I know
1: they do this kids thing, and they're affiliated with children's hospitals and all that kind of stuff. But we really should de-affiliate with McDonald's. If you look at uh, just the kids' ads comparing McDonald's and Burger King, um, only about ten percent of the time for McDonald's ads did they mention a milk or an apple, and hardly at all for the Burger King ads. Um, And they mentioned the premiums more often than they mentioned the food. So, so again, it's just—I mean, it's what you saw in the ad. We just showed that when kids saw these things, that um, what we expected would happen. so I'm going to talk just for a second about the ethics of food marketing because, um, you know, it's unethical to me if the target can't think critically about the message. Okay, I mean, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, right? It's you know, they should be able to first of all distinguish the marketing from the programming, and kids can't do that until they're five. They should be able to understand that there's a persuasive intent to the marketing. They can't understand that until they're seven. And they should be able to think skeptically. You know, these people are trying to sell me something. I should be skeptical about that. They can't do that until they're twelve. So really, we shouldn't be marketing anything to children until they're twelve, right? I don't care if it's toys or anything. It's just wrong. It's it's to to me unethical. And I think more people have to start saying that in the in in the kind of public domain. So I'm going to speak just briefly now about what I think is really interesting science that's coming out um, with respect to pediatric obesity and food cues. This is related to the alcohol study that I showed you. It was published by Auden a couple of years ago. Alcohol receptivity is not related to body mass index, but fast food receptivity is. Right. So there's a specificity to the advertising that we're showing when we compare the fast food obesity relationship and the alcohol-drinking relationship. Um, so here's, here's, you know, uh, um, but, the, but the most interesting part of the research, I think, is coming um, from a uh, partnership that we have with Brain Sciences, where they're studying um, in real time the dopaminergic reward system. And the big part of that reward system is a thing called the nucleus accumbens. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that research. So um, just this year, um, A study was published, uh, and and these guys, this is uh, the Kellerton Lab. This is Bill Kelly, and this is uh, Todd Heatherton over in Psychology and Brain Sciences. Um, And we were able to recruit a sample of adolescents. Half of them were obese, half of them were um, lean. And we showed them a a film. Um, It was a TV show, Big Bang Theory, and it had uh, commercial breaks with food ads and non-food ads. And we could compare how the obese and the non-obese kids responded to the food compared to the non-food ads. Um, and what was really striking, you can see that the, here are the beast kids over here on a BMI graph, and here the lean kids over here. There's a relationship. There's a, a bigger response in some of these brain regions to the, uh, to the uh, food ads, um, uh, the moral BCR. And, and uh, the other thing that's really really interesting and really striking is that when kids watch something like this, it's not just their reward system that lights up. It's their sensory motor system. And if you map where the sensory motor system is lighting up, it's the part of the sensory motor networks that uh, control scripts that, uh, that involve the mouth. So you can see this, this just really maps onto mouth. So not only are they uh, desiring the food, but they're starting to ramp up the motor, uh, motor scripts that they have to eat the food. Okay. <laughs> So, um, we know this because we were, uh, we were reviewing these ads at 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, we'd review them for a half hour to make sure the person that was pulling the still was pulling the right still. And by 10 30, after reviewing a half hour, ads, we were ready for lunch. <laughs> really, all of us wanted to eat after watching the ads for a half hour. So, we, so we know this, but now, now we've actually proved it in a scientific way. Um, so, then uh, another exciting study, Diane Gilbert Diamond. <laughs> has an R21 to study eating in the absence of hunger, and I'm going to tell you what that is. So eating in the absence of hunger is like, she'll, she, she collected their DNA, so this is about genes. This is like real science here. Um, and she gives them a lunch, and she says, eat everything you can, right? He says, you know, eat to your heart's content. They say, I'm full, I can't eat anymore. You put them into a room with cookies, and you let them watch a TV show, right? And randomly assign them to toys versus uh, uh, food commercials. And, and then, you know, ask them questionnaires. The amazing thing is, so they'll eat on average 500 calories in a test meal, and then they'll immediately walk into another room and watch a TV show and eat another 500 calories, okay? So people that are, you know, people that are talking to people about media use and eating, people don't think about how much they eat when they're watching a television show. If they have something good to eat, they'll just eat it. And they'll eat as much <laughs> as they did when they were actually focusing on their meeting and eating and... Um, um, eating a meal. Now, there wasn't that much difference. The, the, the actual, you know, being exposed to the, the food commercials didn't, didn't change how much they ate that much by about 63 calories, but the difference wasn't significant. The interesting thing is um, with respect to this gene, this FTO gene. Now, nobody knows how it works, but we know that it's related to uh, if you have one copy of the gene, a 30% higher risk of obesity, and two copies, a 60% higher risk of obesity in adults. Nobody knows how it works. So the question is, is the reward system altered by this genotype? So what's really interesting in Diane's study is if she looks at the kids that have one or two copies of this gene, that bumps the, the amount that they eat in the... Um, in the second phase of the thing to 98. Now, 98 calories, 100 calories, that's, as you know, 100 calories a day, that's enough to make the difference over a lifetime between an obese person and a non-obese person. So this could be enough to tip your set point enough to make you obese over time. And, and, And so that's really interesting. But even more interesting is this whole idea of whether FTO gene is related to Q reactivity. So Diane has scanned 70 of these children working with Heatherton and Kel- Kelly in their lab um, and looked at, um, at, looked at um, and, and these kids, you know, some of them don't have the gene, some of them have one copy, and some of them have two copy. Um, so when they scan them, they do the same thing. They show them a TV show, figure it out, show them a little food, a little toy, a little food, a little toy, right? And then they um, look at... Uh, what lights up. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, when kids watch, when somebody watches a food commercial, a lot of stuff lights up. They were shocked. But these brains are, are, are really responding to the food commercials. And if you look at the response by genotype, you see that there's a dramatically larger response in the nuclear accumbens and, and um, um, this part of the reward system if they have one or two copies of the gene. But that's not the end of the story. The, the, the other thing is that they've looked at the size of the nucleus accumbens, right? And the kids who are uh, have one or two copies of the gene have a significantly larger nuclear accumbens uh, than the kids that don't. So, what's interesting about this research is, is the possibility that we m- might be on to the mechanism through which FTO leads to obesity over a lifetime. Um, so, that's um, all I have to say about the science. Um, we're going to continue to push tobacco regulatory research. Suzanne Tansy is going to lead the charge on that. We want to integrate tobacco treatment at Dartmouth uh, so that every inpatient gets uh, treatment. And we we want to try to start direct communications with every tobacco user um, so that it's not really dependent on them coming and talking with somebody in our system. Uh, We'll continue the studies on alcohol marketing and behavior. Um, and I think the policy issue uh, for the Coop Institute is alcohol marketing regulation. Federal Trade Commission is supposed to oversee policy, but I think they've been captured by the tobacco industry, and I think that has to be, um, has to be talked about. Um, foods, uh, the food science is uh, really an exciting area. Um, the policy issue is why does their society allow companies to market unhealthy foods directly to children? Um, And then we'll have an educational mission that we'll push forward um, with Anna Dachi Mejia, things that are already in place, lectureships, but also an undergraduate course that Anna co-teaches with me in psychology, a proposed internship with FDA that Mitch Zeller has uh, signed off on, at least verbally, and a video project on how corporations undermine science that threatens their products. Um, The uh, story about that uh, that Uh, led in the New York Times this month was how Coca-Cola funds scientists who shift the blame away from bad diets and towards uh, uh, fitness. Um, But there's many, many uh, examples of this that go um, through all kinds of corporate um, influence. This is on energy, uh, and if you're interested in that, this is a really um, interesting book to read. It's called Merchants of Doubt, um, and uh, suggested reading for anybody that's interested in how Um, corporations undermine science Um, this is uh, a very happy moment for me this was when um, Chick came to graduation and gave me the courage award Um, I hope I have the courage Um, is this big shoes to fill the director of the Coop Institute I have hope I have the courage um, and uh, wherewithal to carry on the torch and to uh, uh, make the Coop Institute something that um, is part of Dartmouth for many years to come. Um, like I said at the beginning, I, I talked mostly about other people's uh, research, but it's not just the researchers. There's a whole bunch of people up on the eighth floor that combine to uh, make this uh, a research team that gets a lot done. And uh, I think I've mentioned everybody in, in, in that list, but there's a lot of um, other people as well in other institutions across the country. And so I thank you for coming. I thank all these people for working with me. And uh, I don't think we have time for questions.